You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in an article from the New York Times uh, a few years ago titled, The Problem of Living in the Present, a philosophy professor wrote this. These days, many of us would rather not be living in the present. That may be my first opportunity for an amen. (laughs) A time of persistent crisis, political uncertainty and fear. Now, this was written a few years ago, so you can add all the experiences that we've had over the last year or two. Not that the future looks better, shadowed by technological advances that threaten widespread unemployment and by the perils of catastrophic climate change. No wonder some are tempted by the comforts of nostalgically imagined past. In other words, no wonder why so many people are living in the past. It goes on to say, inspiring as it seems on first inspection, the self-help slogan, quote, live in the present, end quote, slips rapidly out of focus. What would living in the present mean? To live each day as if it were your last without a thought for the future is simply bad advice. A recipe for recklessness. The idea that one can make oneself invulnerable to what happens by detaching from everything but the present is an irresponsible delusion. So my question for you today is this. Are you living in an irresponsible delusion. Merry Christmas. 
Are you living in an irresponsible delusion? Advent is the season that snaps us out of the delusion. A time for us to stop living as if the present is all there is and causes us to quite literally rivet our hearts to what is to come. And that's what we see in the passage before us today. Look at me again in verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, which I'm venturing is probably many of us, venturing to say is many of us today, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What Isaiah is saying is that we find serious, serious strength in the present as we stare intently into the future. And not just some sort of vague, unrealistic future where we cross our fingers and sort of just hope for the best or better yet, wish for the best. Isaiah is talking about a future with God. Behold your God who was. Behold your God who is. Behold your God who is to come. That's what Advent's about, looking back to the first coming of Jesus so that with the very specific intention of then allowing us to look forward in confidence in anticipation of Christ's return. This is Isaiah's role as a prophet. It's what prophets do. What they do is they stir the imagination of God's people so that we can envision not just life as we know it right now, not just life as we see it right in front of us, but so that we can envision life as it will be. So I'm sure you're familiar with Charles Dickens' famous uh, The Christmas Carol and the infamous Ebenezer Scrooge, who was visited by three spirits on the night before Christmas. The first spirit, the ghost of Christmas past, takes him down memory lane. He's welcomed with these warm memories of what was, but he's also mingled in with these memories or sad stories, things that he would have liked to have forgotten. He's moved by this experience, but he has not changed. As you know, he's then visited by the ghost of Christmas present who shows him life as it is, the life and the people and the things around him that have been happening around him that he's been unaware of or is just simply closed off to. He is challenged by this vision, but he has not changed. And then the most impactful spirit visits him, the ghost of Christmas yet to come or the ghost of Christmas future. And what he shows Ebenezer Scrooge or what it shows Ebenezer Scrooge is what life will be. And by far, despite the terror, despite the discomfort of this vision, this is the vision that transforms him most. And if I can make this correlation without sounding sacrilegious, Isaiah is like the ghost of Christmas yet to come. That is his job. Charles Dickens fan in the back, I know that. His job is to tell people what will be. Both the bad news of what is to come as a result of the rebellion towards God, but also the good news that is to come as a result of God's redeeming grace, the good and the bad that is to come. That's what Isaiah is all about. And the first half of Isaiah really focuses 
on this Hebrew nation of Judah that's going to be overtaken by sorrow when they are driven into exile far, far from their home on the very opposite side of the fertile crescent in a place called Babylon. Far from their homes, far from their land, far from temple worship. And then the second half of the book of Isaiah focuses on how they're going to be overtaken by joy and gladness when they finally come back, when they return home. And the interesting thing about this passage is Isaiah 35 is like right on the cusp of both. Isaiah 35 is right on the razor's edge between life breaking down and then new life breaking in. It's a pivot point. Now where I want to begin is uh, by reading a portion of an old hymn that goes like this. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the son of God he came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. But the point is, and what we see here in Isaiah 35, is that you cannot get to the hallelujah of Christmas without first assessing the ruins. Without first acknowledging that we are ruined sinners. So let's begin there. Let's begin with ruin. The backdrop of these very, very beautiful, hopeful, poetic promises that we see in Isaiah 35, the backdrop is ruin and decay that was going to come upon God's people. They had abandoned God's law. They had perverted the justice system in a way that was then favoring certain privileged parts of society. They had turned to worshiping foreign gods, and then they had begun, uh, be began to depend on these foreign nations to be their refuge, to be their safety and their protection, and judgment was coming. And God's judgment was going to come upon them in the form of foreign invasion and then exile into Babylon. He's warning them. And Isaiah is envisioning this abandoned land in the time after they have been exiled. This is what we read of in this passage. Look at, look at me again on the, on the, on the page of this uh, the pages here in Isaiah 35, we see a wilderness. We read of dry desert land. We see uh, burning hot sand. If you've ever been to the beach in summer, you know that. You can almost feel that under your feet right now. We read of thirsty ground. We read of jackals have overrun this place. As I'm reading this, as I'm envisioning it, it's almost like the, um, the forbidden elephant graveyard in Lion King. Like, we don't go there. We don't go there. It's dark, it's desolate, it's abandoned. Life no longer thrives here. Life doesn't work here. Maybe you've seen the pictures of the neighboring towns around Chernobyl. In 1986, after nuclear failure, within a matter of 36 hours, the entire cities were moved out and evacuated because of this nuclear failure. It was a totally abandoned city. And now there are pictures. If you've seen pictures of Chernobyl today, it is a very strange place. Buildings are falling apart. Thorns and thistles have overgrown things like kids' playgrounds. There are these absolutely terrifying mutated animals that were drinking the nuclear water, and now I don't even know what they are. It's just a strange, strange, hostile place. Isaiah is describing something like this it's barren, it's broken. It's abandoned. It's a hostile environment. And this is both a practical and a spiritual 
description. Practically speaking, the way that we live, the decisions that we make, the the way that we interact with the world around us has a very real ecological impact on the world that we have been called to steward. We leave a footprint. And it doesn't matter where you land in the whole argument in politics, we have jacked this place up. We've messed this place up. The previous chapter, uh, Isaiah describes, think about this, in the previous chapter, Isaiah 34, he describes oil and pitch in the water and sulfur in the soil. It's not hard to imagine things like today, like oil spills in the Gulf, uh, contaminated land because of landfills. Isaiah is describing the things that we see today. Decisions made on, based on greed or excess or just simply ignoring the future have very real impacts on the state of the world that we have been entrusted to care for. We've been called to cultivate the garden. We've been called to Edenize the world and we've brought breakdown. We've turned the garden into a desert. In fact, Romans 8 describes the whole of creation groaning under the weight of its bondage to corruption. The world was unwillingly subjected to our mess. And the world's like, what have you done? What have you done? All of creation is under the curse of sin, both through the fall that we read of in Genesis 3, but also by our ongoing sinful patterns and decisions, the world is groaning under the weight of the curse, practically speaking. But what's happening in the land is also a window into the state of its people. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, there was often this very mysterious connection made between the condition of the land and the spiritual condition of the people. So think about this, years of drought, And years of famine was often a sign that God's people had become rebellious and were unbelieving. And then years of abundance and blessing were often a sign of God's favor upon God's people. Not always, but often the land mirrored the hearts of the people. Often the land was a window into the spiritual state of God's people. And so when Isaiah is describing this desolate landscape that is literally falling apart and is in ruins, he is not just envisioning a place. Isaiah is describing a people. And more specifically, this is where it gets personal, Isaiah is describing all people left to themselves. Isaiah is describing people left to their own devices. And with the curse of sin also comes the crippling nature of sin. Isaiah uses descriptions here like blind, being blind and deaf and lame and mute. These, these all illustrate how incapable we are of simply rising above our plight. We cannot see, we cannot hear, we can't muscle, we can't talk our way out of ruin can't. And this is illustrated throughout human history, which only seems to repeat itself. I was having a conversation with someone on Friday that was asking me about Christianity. Older gentleman, very smart. He was a chemist before he retired. Definitely not a Christian, but he was asking very good questions. I think he 
really wanted to know a little bit more about what I believed. And as we're talking about faith, he said, you know, I, I like to believe that we are all our own gods. That's kind of what I believe, he said. He'd been influenced by uh, figures like Joseph Campbell. He believed that transcendence and divinity is a human thing, that we have divinity within us. It's, it's, it's about us. And so I asked, so that means your hope for the future is in humanity. That's what you're saying? And he responded, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. I mean, where else would we hope? What else would we hope in? And I asked him a very simple question. I asked him, how's that working out so far? Your hope is in humanity. You're a smart guy. How is that working out for us? And he looked at me, sort of dumbfounded, and he said, you make a really good point. You make a really good point. Ruin is the necessary backdrop for the good news of restoration that we see here, the healing and the hope that comes not from within humanity, but from outside of humanity. Which leads us to our second point, restoration. I think I'm gonna get another woot from Pastor David on this one, another Lord of the Rings illustration. <laughs> In the Lord of the Rings, after the fierce battle over this powerful ring, a little hobbit named Samwise is recovering. He's been injured, but he's gonna pull through. But there's still this sort of sadness that looms over the story because the beloved wizard Gandalf has been dragged into the abyss and has died. But at the end of the story, Sam hears this voice that he recognizes as he's coming to consciousness. And the voice says, well, Mr. Samwise, how do you feel? And as he's coming to, as he's coming back to consciousness, he realizes that's not just any voice, that's the voice of Gandalf back alive. And the story goes that Sam lays back and he stares with open mouth for a moment and, and it's described as he's somewhere between bewilderment and great joy and he can't speak. He's just dumbfounded. He's just mouth open and he finally gasps and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead. And then he asks this really like childish but profound question. He asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? That's the question of Advent. That's the question that we gather to ask and hopefully answer. Is everything sad gonna come untrue? And Isaiah's answer to that question is a resounding yes, 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 yes. Look with me again in verses one through two. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. That sounds like a strange animal. That's a flower. I had, I had to look that up. Like the crocus. Oh, the crocus, the beloved crocus. And it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon, which is known for its cedar trees, shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Yes, the sad news is that we have turned this garden into a desert. 
And yet, yes, the good news is that God restores deserts back into gardens. And I think the statement that the real take home statement that we see here in Isaiah 35 is that God's ability to restore is always going to be greater than our ability to ruin. God's ability to restore your life is greater than your ability to ruin it. God's ability to restore your relationships is greater than your ability to ruin it. And God's ability to restore this world is greater than our ability to ruin it. Yes, 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 Isaiah says. Sin has brought death and decay and all sorts of breakdown. Let's be honest about that. But where the king of glory appears, the curse is reversed. It it literally is like turning backwards on itself. God is pushing reverse. He's undoing. And we see this amazing list, uh, this amazing list of before and afters. Maybe you've seen like makeover shows where the extreme home makeover, you see the before and the after. Let's look again at the before and afters that Isaiah lays out here. Before, sorrow. After, joy. Before, dryness. After, springs. Before, desolation. After, blossoming in abundance. Before, weakness. After, strength. Before, anxiety and crippling fear. After, hope, confidence, boldness. Before, blindness. After, sight. Before, deafness. After, hearing. Before, lameness. After, leaping. Before, silence. After, singing. Everything sad becoming untrue. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? What we see here is that every single square inch of life that has been broken, that's been wounded, that's been hurt, that's been debilitated, is in the process of being healed, is coming back to life again. There's a famous line that I found out actually unfortunately gets cut out of the Christmas carol, but it belongs back in there, so maybe we'll bring it back this year. But it comes from Isaac Watts' famous Christmas hymn that goes like this, no more let sins and sorrows grow. I love that, no more. Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Wherever the curse has touched, oh, another uh, Lion King phrase, wherever the light touches, <laughs> wherever the curse has touched, the light and healing of Jesus Christ heals. Do you believe it? Isaiah goes on to say in verse six, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I love this because the word here for break forth is actually, like, we think of, like, leaping. I'll do that again. But actually, this is a violent term. It's a violent term. It means to literally tear open. It's a picture of God fiercely tearing something open. What is he tearing open? 
God violently breaks that which has broken us. God violently breaks our brokenness. But it's also a beautiful picture here because if you think about it, it's sort of like a birth. Not to get too graphic, but this tearing open, it's painful, sort of violent. It's tearing open. Water is breaking forth. What's Isaiah doing here? Isaiah is foreshadowing a delivery. Isaiah is foreshadowing the birth of something new. And what is appearing is not just new life, it's a new life. You see, the hope of Isaiah 35 is not just that life in general breaks in. What is new life? I don't know. Is it a thing? Is it a substance? Is it an ethereal thing? No. Look at me in verse 4. Behold, your God will come. Meaning, God himself breaks in. Not to get too graphic, again, Christmas is literally the life of heaven squeezing through. Squeezing through into our humanity. Squeezing through into our brokenness. Squeezing through into our pain. 2,000 years ago, Jesus broke in, literally, born in the flesh of a virgin named Mary. You know the story. And in his ministry, he fulfilled this prophecy. We read of Jesus healing the crippled and healing the blind and healing the lame and healing the the deaf and and the mute. And through his death on the cross, we know through the gospel that Jesus actually took the curse upon himself. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse, how? By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How are we redeemed from the curse? Jesus took it on himself. And he rose again on the third day, ushering in resurrection life, life abundant for those who would trust in him. Jesus is quite literally the first fruits of a new world that is to come. He was planted in the ground, but then springs up a new life. As theologians describe it, the work of Jesus Christ is that he is setting the world right again. What did Jesus come to do? He came to set the world right again. That's the meaning behind recompense. That probably doesn't come up in your vocabulary very often, but recompense means making right. He's making right everything that has gone wrong. Jesus is bringing order out of chaos. Jesus is bringing justice to imbalance. Jesus is bringing restoration to our ruin. And when Jesus returns, that's when everything will be finally made right again. That's when all of creation, everything that we see, everything we experience, will be totally, once and for all, restored. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more fighting, no more sickness, no more death, just life and freedom and joy and abundance forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. All the decay, all the breakdown of this world, 
all the aches, all the pains, all the hurts, all the fear, all the anxiety will be undone. And the garden will break out all over the earth. Every square inch will be changed. That's the kind of climate change we pray for. That's the kind of climate change we need. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who makes everything right again. Today, it's important to understand where we are situated in that story. That's what Advent does. Between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, we are beginning to see the buds of new life starting to grow. I've got this saucer magnolia tree in my backyard. It's also called a Chinese magnolia. It's not your run-of-the-mill magnolia. I know the magnolia trees you guys have in your yard. It's better. It's the best magnolia in the neighborhood. It doesn't get cracky and hard and brittle. It stays supple and soft. And the bloom is beautiful and, I'm telling you, best tree in the neighborhood. But this time of year, it is dead. All the leaves have fallen. It's brittle. It's just dead. But I went outside the other day and I noticed the little, little tiny buds have appeared. And because of the past that I have as a reference point, I know what is coming soon in the next month or two. And before I know it, this tree is going to be in full bloom. I don't see it yet. I don't see it yet. But I can see it blooming in my imagination. Right now, if I close my eyes, I can see that tree, pink and beautiful. Because of the past, I can be sure of what is coming in the future. That's Advent. And so the question for us is, what are those buds of life that we see right now? What do we see today? We see hope. Hope that is quite literally overcoming anxiety and fear among us. What do we see? We see peace overcoming our resentments and our hostility. We see love overcoming isolation and shame. We see joy overcoming sorrow and despair. We see the buds of life. We see God's healing reign unfolding before us. The restoration isn't complete. The bloom is just a bud. So don't get impatient. Don't forget what you're seeing. Don't forget what's coming. And in the meantime, we continue to cultivate the life of Christ. We, like the original exiles, were commanded to do in exile. What do we do? We plant gardens. We put down roots. We seek the welfare of our city. We cultivate the life of Christ. We plant the seeds of the kingdom knowing that even if we do not see the fruit in our lifetime, even if we don't see the bloom before we die, that God is bringing about new life. It is as good as done. And my last, final and brief point is returning home. As I mentioned earlier, Isaiah envisions both exile and return home. And Israel's journey of exile is really to serve as a pattern for the Christian life. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from the bondage to, uh, our bondage to sin, but we are still on our journey home. And we're on a highway that Isaiah describes here as the way of holiness, the way of Jesus that leads to God and refines us in the process, the path 
of set-apartness. We're on that journey. We're on our way home. There was a writer named Ian Sinclair that retraced the steps of a famous poet from the past named John Clare. And he wrote about this poet uh, escaping a very hostile environment and journeying kind of on the lamb to try to get back home. And on his journey, he faces a lot of obstacles. His shoes were wearing out. He was exposed to the elements. He was sleeping on porches. He was starving. He ended up eating grass on the roadside just to survive. He was exhausted. He was beat up, and he was within an inch of giving up. And he eventually reached a certain fork in the road that indicated to him that he was really close to home. And in that moment, it revived him, and he said, quote, I felt that I was in home's way. And this biographer uses a word, I think they made up this word to, des to describe this experience. He uses this word of this feeling. He, he calls it homefulness. Homefulness. And it means becoming filled with the feeling of home. Homefulness is that feeling you get when you maybe exit from an airport. You're back in your hometown. Homefulness is that experience you feel when you're driving north on the I-5 and I-5 splits to come like on the backside of Tracy to head towards Stockton and you know you're close to home. Homefulness is that experience when you're a kid on your bike and you round the corner onto your street and you know you're close to home. Homefulness is when you're going back to visit family and you're, you get out of the car and you can smell the cooking, your parents or whoever's cooking, coming outside, drawing you in, reminding you that you are really close to home. Homefulness. And this is the intention of Isaiah 35. And this is the heart behind Advent, to fill you with a vision, to fill you with the feeling of home, to, to remind you of a world that is yet to come, to remind you of where you are headed. For the Christian, you are closer than you've ever been before. Salvation is nearer to you right this very moment than when you first believed. You were close to home. The fork in the road has occurred. Homefulness fill your heart. But also this passage also should create homesickness. It should create a void in those who do not know where they're headed, who don't know what path they're on, who don't know who they are following. A homesickness that ought to welcome you to join this path, the way that is Jesus, the way to the Father through faith, the way that is open to anyone who would come by faith. Homefulness, homesickness. So just a few closing instructions to respond to this passage. Three very brief things I think that we need to do in response to this passage. The first is this, we need to strengthen the weak and the anxious. That is the point here. That Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. This is a great description of encouragement. Encouragement is not saying, oh, job well done. Encouragement is literally putting courage into someone. Be strong. 
Take heart. God has come and he's coming. Don't let Christmas be about you this year. Refuse to let Christmas be about your cute, heartwarming traditions and your sentimental feelings of coziness. Let's make Christmas about putting courage in the people around us. Let's make Christmas about being faithful to say, take heart, Christ is coming again. Secondly, stay the course. It shall belong to those who walk in the way, I love this, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Praise the Lord. Even fools like me can make it. But it's not based on strength. It's not based on cleverness. It is not based on success. It is not based on being a good Christian. It is based on perseverance. And specifically the grace that God supplies us with to keep going. Hear me. Do not turn aside. I know the road is long and difficult. I know that you have faced difficulties along the way. I know that this year feels like it has diminished maybe the little faith that you had left. But you cannot turn aside. This is not a time to give up. This is a time to keep going because you are closer now than you have ever been. And lastly, let's sing your way home. Verse 10, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. So think about this. Faith in Jesus is how we get into God's kingdom. But singing is the way that we're to enter. They will enter Zion with singing. Let's not come in unjoyful. Let's not come in apathetic. Let's not come in cynical and critical. Let's enter in with God's people with singing and joy. And one of the best ways that we can honor the future in our very present moment is by attaching our gladness and our joy not to what is now. If we are to attach our joy and gladness to what is right now, we don't have a, a lot of reasons to sing. I get that. But let's honor where we are going by attaching our emotions to attaching our singing, to attaching our gladness and our joy to what is com coming. Because for the Christian, your future is bright. Your future is sure. And your future has given you very, very good reason to sing. How do we respond? Let's strengthen the weak. Let's stay the course. And let's sing our way home. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...